Welcome to Rooster Radio. My name's Andrew Montesi and I'm here with my co-rooster, James Begley. Really looking forward to this chat, James. It's highly anticipated, I think. Well, like every week, they're always uh, highly anticipated and I think you're always really excited. But on this occasion, probably a smidgen more than usual. I'm particularly excited because I'm here with uh, Stuart Snyder, who I've had a fair bit to do with in the last year or so in particular. Uh, Stuart is... Uh, massive for the South Australian startup scene in terms of um, generously giving his time and um, insight and sharing his learnings um, with many founders, young and old, in Adelaide. And um, we certainly need that, not just in Adelaide, but Australia-wide. So welcome, Stuart. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Andrew, and uh, glad to be here. So before we get into who you are and your story, we always um, Mm. sort of reflect on um, our surroundings here in this office. What are some of the key What stands out? What stands uh, out to you? Well, I am just amazed that you have a your startup with a five-star office space. <laughs> uh, I five, don't know how you can afford of, this. Five out of 100 stars? Yeah, is, that yes. is, is it the exposed air-conditioning vent uh, or is the the drop lights uh, with no uh, globes no, in I there? I think it's the view of the wall next door that <laughs> is the most impressive. Absolutely. Okay, so... The background on Stuart is born and raised in Silicon Valley, is that uh, right? Not born, but grew up there. Yep. So I, I went to high school in Cupertino, California with Steve Jobs. Yeah, Steve. Um, bit of a no-name, isn't he? No. Um, what, what did he ever do? Yeah, so what was it like, um, I guess, high school with Steve? Well, I knew a different Steve Jobs than what people know of today, as most people think of him as the successful businessman, but I knew him as a high school, long-haired, hippie weirdo, (laughs) uh, who, uh, what I shared with him was uh, an interest in spirituality, um, and we would talk about how to find nirvana, and he would tell me what he experienced when he was taking LSD and how that would help expand his consciousness. And I would tell him I didn't think drugs were a real experience, but I was curious as to what he experienced. Wow. That's uh, very interesting indeed. I guess from there, um, probably this is almost completely opposite, but then you moved into accounting. Um, so you're talking about LSD, spirituality, long-haired hippies, and then you move into accounting. Well, I, I left home at 19. I grew up in a dysfunctional, dysfunctional home and had to leave home. So uh, I realized I had to support myself, and I went back to university and studied accounting and did really well and wound up at KPMG in San Jose, California in 1979 is where I started my career. Just taking you back, Stuart, um, just a fraction, can you, can you give us a description of what... Um, it, Cupertino or is Cupertino. It Cupertino. Sorry, I, I read the Steve Jobs book and I kept saying Cupertino. I suppose yeah, that's yeah, a bit, yeah, a bit, yeah, Australian, yeah. A bit Australian. But can you, you know, this was this was a place before it was Silicon Valley. Absolutely. What was it like? Well, that's a really good question, James. Because when I came to Adelaide in 1993, it reminded me of Cupertino in 1969. And uh, what people don't realize, Silicon Valley was not always Silicon Valley. When I grew up there, there were apricot orchards. My parents' house was built on an apricot orchard. The largest employer would have been Libby's or Del Monte fruit canning. 
there were uh, there was some defense co industry there, uh, like uh, NASA and Lockheed was there. Stanford University was there, and that was one of the keys to why Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley, because the semiconductor came out of, uh, out of Stanford. So fast forward then, you, you're in accounting, but then some years later you end up in Adelaide and you found co-found a company called Your Amigo. Yes. Right at the, uh, probably even before internet marketing was really a thing. Uh, yes, well this uh, was the end of the dot-com boom. I, uh, my ex-wife was from Adelaide. That brought me out here in 1993. And I worked in a defense company as, at my first job and I met the brightest group of people I have ever met. And I said we should start a company one day because in Silicon Valley, this is what everyone does if you have this high level of talent. Uh, but I didn't realize how hard it would be. But anyways, in 1999, uh, our CEO founded some interesting uh, ideas that came out of the Flinders University, and we turned that into Your Amigo, an automated search engine optimization service. So give us a bit of a snapshot as to what the whole search engine world looked like back then. Google was around, yeah. but it was not like it well, is today. This, uh, you know, at the end of 1999, the big search engines would have been uh, like LookSmart, HotBot, Yahoo, Lycos, which no one's probably ever heard of today. But they weren't very good at ranking, so you would get all sorts of results, and they weren't very good. Uh, what Google came up with that was different, they were founded in 1998, was the ability to rank based on how many links went to a, a site or a page and that would place more value than just the keywords on the page and then they started to take off um, and we went through several iterations we thought at first we would be an internet search engine and then the dot-com boom ended and we realized we had a need for a product so we created an enterprise search product for searching within a website or an intranet that became very competitive, and then we realized we could uh, create pages and get them to rank high in Google, which is what we did, and we could increase traffic to a website by 3 to 25% and um, charge per click or a revenue share, which is why the company became so successful. Sure, you, you've, you've probably talked through two or three different phases of your Amigo. I'm, I'm always fascinated with that sort of formative six months year of, of, of beginning the business and how you go from being on a salary uh, to a bunch of people who have a crack and, and yeah. say, Let, let's do this properly. Mm -hmm. and, and there seems to be a whole raft of different ways in which people have achieved this. What, what was the first six months a year like for you guys? Well, I, I would say it was the first five years, actually even longer, was extraordinarily stressful. We were loss making. Um, Any? Can you give us an insight as to some sort of rough numbers as to what you might be losing in the first five years? Uh, well, one of the things we did that was smart was we kept our team as lean as possible. Uh, so, what happened? We got a research grant in I think it was around 2000. We hired about 12 people. And around 2002, that grant came to an end. We had to let go almost everyone, and we were back down to one or two engineers. And we had, and it was a smart thing because after September 11th, 
uh, through to the Iraq War. No one was buying software or investing in software. Uh, but we had a very charismatic CEO, and one of the things he did extraordinarily well was to convince uh, risk-adverse Adelaide business people to put in some small amounts. Some were larger amounts, but enough to keep the company afloat, and we matched that with grants. And uh, But I remember every Christmas for those first five years, I was thinking to myself, I couldn't see how we'd still be in business in six months, and I was be all stressed when most people were enjoying their Christmas. So what triggered the turnaround then? Well, we, uh, as I said, we around 2003, we realized we could make websites visible to Google. That was one of our key abilities. So there were, Sony Europe had a website that had 60,000 products. None of them were in Google, and they couldn't fix it. They hired consultants who couldn't fix it, and then they engaged us. And then within three months, they had all 60,000 products in Google, paying us 10 pence a click. And, um, uh, and then around 2005, we um, started gaining some traction in the market where we were charging per click and showing, and they could measure that people came back and bought. Um, we were almost out of money. We almost, uh, we had a term sheet from two Silicon Valley venture capital firms in 2005, but that wasn't going very well at all. And our UK sales rep signed up what I thought would be a large customer, and I was telling our the other two directors, I, I think we might be able to squeak by without them. Why don't we give it a try? And we did, but it took another nine months before it just really turned around, and then it took off because that large customer became very large, and we were driving enormous traffic and conversions to their website. So you became an Adelaide-based company that was now a global player. Absolutely. Well, uh, Your Amigo is still headquartered in Adelaide, and it's still very profitable, doing very well, has no Australian customers. And in 2008, we were the South Australian exporter of the year, and so I was very proud that we did that all for Adelaide. Because one of the things I did learn coming from Silicon Valley, a, a lot of people here think that all, all the smart people are there. And I saw almost the opposite, that in most companies I worked with over there, there were a lot of average people in high positions because there are so many opportunities. Where in Adelaide, you have really smart people in sort of mediocre positions because there's not that many opportunities. So you can get some really outstanding people here. How did you find your role within the organization? You know, what were the challenges for you um, in, in you know, working with a charismatic CEO and dealing with global clients? What were the, what were the hard things? Uh, well, I, I, the real hard thing, uh, which is very stressful when you're an accountant and financial person is you know, making sure there's money in the bank that you can pay people. And as, as I, I, I kind of joke that my exit strategy for the first three, five years was suicide. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so um, yeah, that, that's, that's very stressful. But uh, in, in the early days, what I, I loved about the early days, though, is we were, you know, up against the wall, but we worked extremely well together as a team. The CEO, he would grab a good idea, whoever brought it forward, and we would and do something with it. And we would try new things, 
you know, something wasn't working, we'd, we'd change overnight and go down a different route. And we ultimately found our way. And then by getting out in the market and talking to customers, like one of the really brilliant things the CEO did was um, instead of charging a software license, he realized that we could make more as a recurring revenue and we charge per click or revenue share like Google. And our CTO had a brilliant idea for creating new content pages um, and up until a few years ago, Your Amigo was the only company in the world that could do that. There is one competitor now that raised $41 million U.S. in venture capital, but they're not as good as Your Amigo. What are your tips for Australian startups that want to be a global player? Like, we hear a lot of excuses, whether it's geographical, money, whatever. What would you say to a young founder who dreams of running a global company um, here in Australia? Well, it is fair to say, and I experienced this firsthand, there are challenges you'll face here in Adelaide that if you were located in Silicon Valley, you probably wouldn't face as, as bad. And some of those might include, like, uh, raising capital would be more difficult here. Finding your early customers, there isn't as much industry. It's a smaller market. Uh, but having said that, there are really bright people, and I think that's a big advantage is you're not competing with Google or Apple for the really bright people. And uh, I'm also an investor in Blackbird Ventures, um, uh, a venture capital firm that's done extremely well. They've just raised another $200 million for a, a new fund. Uh, their approach is along the Atlassian model, and the founders of Atlassian are, are investors in Blackbird. But... They are looking for companies that are global from day one and that can sell purely over the internet, uh, which means they don't need all the salespeople. Now, your Amigo was more a traditional company that needed salespeople. Um, I think things are starting to improve, uh, especially with the, the new Prime Minister's announcements that we're seeing success stories, and this is what changed Silicon Valley many years ago. Uh, before Apple listed, um, it was somewhat of a, you know, behind the, the, the East Coast and not that dynamic. But once Apple was very successful, the attitudes changed overnight. So we will need to see some success stories, and we are. Uh, Atlassian, Atlassian will list on the NASDAQ stock exchange for about $5 billion, and that will make people take notice here that it, it can be done out of Australia. Mm -hmm. Stuart, I'm, we're keen to unpack, I guess, a lot of what has been announced recently in this innovations um, sort of uh, the ideas, I, boom. ideas boom. But I am wondering, like, it just strikes me as you talk about your amigo and and the fact that I, you know, hadn't heard about it, mm -hmm. and it's in our backyard. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's in Adelaide, and and I'm wondering whether things are changing a little bit because now that the sexy, you know, young business people, Vinamofo, you talk about Atlassian. There are some young guys who are well-known now mm. for building online mm. business, tech-based business. I'm wondering whether your Amigo might have been like that back in the day. Yeah, uh, look, I think uh, part of the uh, uh, issue with that would be, first of all, when you're doing a company like that, you're working extraordinary long hours. So you're not thinking of terms of, like, how can we help the Adelaide community or Australia change. We're thinking, how can we survive? How can we grow our business? 
And uh, the other thing factor is uh, your amigo has no Australian customers. Mm. So we're, you know, was very concerned about what was our image in the U.S. Probably didn't care. We did try early on selling into Australia, found it to be fairly risk adverse and not as willing to try new things. And it's a small market, so we would rather spend the same amount of money selling to a company in the U.S., where 320 million people are searching than in Australia where you could get clicks from 23 million. So, uh, but yeah, look, they could, it could have done more to, you know, promote their accomplishments. I think it is part of the culture here where you don't want to stand out or be a tall poppy. Uh, but I, I moved on and left three years ago. Uh, basically, I retired. So I had the time to do this. You know, those guys, you know, still work hard and you know, have other priorities. They're focused on closing accounts and getting customers and uh, paying out dividends to the shareholders. It was probably, you mentioned that uh, you are in this retired state. Mm -hmm. Perhaps give us a bit of a snapshot of your life now. Um, when meeting Stuart, um, he's always quick to hand out his business card, which I think it says retired lazy bum. No, right? unemployed lazy bum. Unemployed lazy yes. bum. Yes. I love it. It's, a, it's always an interesting conversation starter, mm. that's for mm. sure. Well, uh, yeah, so my life's been a... Now. I'll show you my unemployed lazy card, <laughs> but you can't see that at home. But well, where is that? Uh, this is in Lake Bacal, Siberia. So it's, it's a photo of uh, Stuart at Lake... Where? Lake Bacal, Lake Siberia. It holds 20% of the world's fresh water. So um, my story since your amigo was, well, uh, you know, we, we had tried exiting and were close to exiting selling the company and some things didn't work out and I realized, uh, look, I had been there 12 and a half years. Uh, I had received good dividends and it was time for me to move on. I didn't need to work. So I was ready for a change and I, first thing I did, I, I spent a month at, at home and planned a trip that I always wanted to do from Beijing to Berlin by train. I, I went alone, my, my family went out with me. Uh, I returned home the next day, my, my ex was mentioned our marriage wasn't going anywhere and I had to agree with her. So we, we separated and uh, I wound up divorced and uh, my, at the time my teenage children didn't talk to me for a few years. Uh, and so for that year, um, I was very financially well off, but I felt myself all alone. And uh, it was kind of interesting. I saw a documentary about prisoners in solitary confinement, and I related to what they were experiencing. So just because you're financially well off doesn't mean you'll be happy. But fortunately for me, uh, I found a lot of things to do. I started doing volunteer work. And I mentor a lot of entrepreneurs through the e-challenge at Adelaide Uni and Venture Dorm at Flinders Uni. I invested in some software companies. Um, Portalink, uh, really exciting Adelaide company. Uh, and Happy Inspector, uh, uh, CEO Jindu Lee, uh, was from Adelaide, started here, but then he is now in San Francisco. And he will be here in January. I think he's going to give a talk at Majoran about how to do it. And you've asked that question. He'd be a good one to learn um, how to do a very successful online company. 
come back to that idea of mentoring you obviously are exposed to a lot of young people having a crack in in this sort of tech space what do you think the key attributes are in terms of the humanistic attributes well of entrepreneurship because it's a big label isn't yeah, it? it yeah. means a lot of things yeah you know a lot of people ask me this and one of the things i i tell them is no, you, you don't need to do drugs to be a successful <laughs> entrepreneur. So, Steve, I think he would have been successful no matter what. But, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real difficult uh, thing to... I, I read somewhere that entrepreneurs come in all sizes and shapes, and I believe that. Some will be very successful because they're really technically gen- geniuses. Some have great salesmanship, um, some have a vision, uh, some just have a great idea. Uh, but it is um, rare, and, and as I say, with the CEO at your amigo, Raman Coupe, um, I had worked with him at the defense company in the early days of your amigo. I would say he was the most talented person I ever worked with in that not only did he have that charisma to sell, but he was very, very smart, and he could have been a great lawyer, a great accountant, uh, he studied technology and engineering, and so he could have done some things with that. But um, with, you know, uh, the people I, I meet, um, me personally, uh, I would look for someone who can sell the vision as the most important aspect of being a successful tech entrepreneur, and that's what Steve Jobs was able to do. He could not code or design a circuit board, but he could convince the brightest people to work for him. And this is what you look for as an investor as well? Uh, I do. Um, interesting thing, uh, you know, the, the venture capital from Blackbird Ventures is actually looking more for technical co-founders because they view Atlassian as the role model. Now, these guys are very, very smart. I, I've met them really nice people, um, but I think they have great people mm. skills too. I, I think that's a bit underrated. I don't think you're a great fit for Blackbird Ventures then, James. Oh, what, because I don't wear a hat and a sports coat at the same time? Uh, <laughs> um, no, but but just, just on that, Stuart, I mean, um, how do you, when you're talking to the young entrepreneurs, how, how do you um, temper the expectation that to, to be involved in a tech startup, it's got to be explosive and it's got to be instant and you've got to go from zero to Facebook in, in six months. Like, how do you work with... Okay. How do you temper that kind of, like, expectation? Yeah. Which is a really good question because, you know, as I say, your amigo took five, six years. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Portalink and Happy Inspector, same story. You always hear about the... WhatsApp that sells in two years for a billion dollars, but I think that's more a Silicon Valley story. In Australia, all the successful companies, almost all of them I run into, almost all are bootstrapped, and you have to because, you know, getting that early funding is very, very hard. And so I think the, the Australians, I think, are a little more realistic, but um, which is a good thing. And they're much more focused on how to get early revenue, which I think is a very good thing. Um, I don't try to tell people how to run their business. I think uh, mentors who do that aren't doing the right thing. Um, I will give my advice and opinion uh, if they ask for it. I don't 
try to tell them how to run their business. Um, I didn't, wouldn't have liked that when I was with your amigo. Uh, I would listen to people's advice, but uh, and I think some venture capitalists try to do that, where they try to run the company, and I think that's destructive. You want people who have enthusiasm who think they can grow it really big, and not to try to discourage that enthusiasm, but you know, help them find the the path to get there. I heard a really interesting thing on another podcast, Mixergy, um, which is a tech startup and and great sort of uh, online business story podcast. And one of the guests that was featured made a really interesting point that he thought there was a bubble at the moment in Silicon Valley Mm. in that he said a lot of the time, a lot of this investment is just this buffer that, that is prolonging what will be inevitable pain. He said, you walk into some of these startups, they've got 24-hour masseuses, they've got you know pool tables. I want to work there. Yeah, <laughs> but he did. He made a really interesting yeah, point, and yeah. he talked about rev- early mm. revenues. Mm. And, mm. And, and he said that, in his mind, a lot of these businesses are not going to succeed, but they are attracting a lot of funding. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'm 61, and I've seen several waves. I saw the... Semiconductor boom and bust, the PC boom and bust, uh, a mini computer boom and bust, um, the dot com boom and bust, um, and this is this is my opinion. So what happens is when there's all this these new technologies, people have this vision of what could be, and I think a lot of uh, venture capitalists, especially like during the dot-com boom, were very good at selling the story, and, and they would get these companies that had no revenue listing on the stock exchange for a billion dollars. They made money, but then the public wound up holding the bag. But having said that, uh, uh, what has happened since then, since the dot-com boom? Well, is Google successful? Is Amazon successful? Uh, I would say most definitely yes, that the internet was very real, but it takes time to sort out the really good companies from the bad ones. And what we're seeing today, in my opinion, is we're in a valuation bubble. I think there will be a lot of great things coming out uh, that we never had before, because just look at, you know, mobile phones. Um, All the things you can do, like Happy Inspector is a mobile app for property inspection. Now, instead of putting things on pen and paper, a, a property inspector can use their mobile app, take pictures, and email it instantaneously, which saves them a lot of time. So we'll see uh, lots of things, good things coming out, but they take time. But with you, you have 160 or so unicorns, which are companies, private companies valued at a billion dollars or more, that have, many of them have very little revenue. So I think what we might see, my guess will be in five years, uh, maybe 10 of those companies will be very successful. Uh, half will probably, you know, not do well or fold, and then the rest will be sold or merged into something else. But in the long term, uh, this is what I think is very, very exciting that people don't realize is technology uh, has overtaken almost every other sector in terms of valuation. So if you look at the most valuable company in the world, it's Apple. It's overtaken Exxon, but then you have not far behind Google, Facebook. Technology is impacting every industry now. And so 
if you're in an industry and you're not optimizing your use of technology, you'll go out of business. So let's talk about the Australian technology startup scene then. Only a few days ago we had the Australian government's massive announcement which has created a lot of excitement relating to what they're calling the ideas boom, which is in excess of $1 billion over four years, I believe, putting, put towards innovation and research. You shared on your LinkedIn, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you've been talking about the need for something like this for, for a long time. As you said, you had high hopes for Adelaide in particular, coming from Silicon Valley, yeah. that uh, we could see a, a real sort of explosion here in Australia. How do you see things now? Uh, well, it's definitely a step in the right direction, a very important step that the person at the top actually understands it. And this is something that's been very difficult for me. Growing up in Silicon Valley, it's a given. You can make enormous money in technology, create enormous wealth in, in many jobs. But when I first came here, I tell people I'm from Silicon Valley, and they say, was that by Disneyland? <laughs> And now I think people, everyone now owns a, an iPhone or, and they're always using it. I think people are starting to get it, but they used to have the attitude here, oh, well, we, we can't do that because we're from Adelaide. And I had a very opposite point of view because I met the talent that was here and I met the, and I grew up with people in Silicon Valley who were less talented. So... In Silicon Valley, it's really having smart people with great ideas is the most important thing. So we we have that. But what it's going to take is seeing more companies gaining traction. This is definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, There are many aspects to the announcement, such as funding, but also uh, placing a greater emphasis on investing in university research that results in commercialization, you know, a bigger focus on commercialization, um, seeing how governments here, and I'm a very strong advocate of this, is actually buy from the small innovative companies that are here. They're probably the most difficult customer to sell to, and that was our experience at Uramiga. We sold a search engine to Honolulu Police, McGraw-Hill, Chicago Tribune, but were unable to sell to the South Australian police. So, uh, and I still hear that today, and uh, it, it needs a cultural change where people will embrace that we have great people with talent here and we're going to give some of these ideas a go. In reading some of your previous thoughts online, you've, you've mentioned quite a few times the importance of good universities mm-hmm. and the relationship between mm-hmm. uh, the government, business, and the university sectors. How do you see that in Australia? Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I was reading an article by Matt Berry, who founded Freelancer, and he went to Stanford but also went here, and he was saying, yeah, at Stanford, you know, all his lecturers had worked in industry and were well-known and respected and had real-world experience, but that his university that he graduated had the same lecturers who never worked in industry. So I think we need to see a lot more collaboration. That is part of the announcement where universities work closely with industry in solving real-world problems. Um, I, I think there's never been much of an incentive or pressure 
to do so. I think it's been more about you know getting their research published, which to me is you know not that important as creating jobs and wealth. So um, I, I but, but you have seen in the recent years like. Uh, the Venture Dorm has emerged out of the new Venture Institute out of Flinders. That's a very new initiative. Uh, the E-Challenge uh, at Adelaide Uni has been going for a number of years, and now they're expanding into France. So, And they have a lot of students are really interested in studying entrepreneurship because, well, what they tell me is they want a business card just like mine. They, they want to be an unemployed lazy bum, too. What, what are the key challenges in Australia... Um, that impact startups, and do you think um, it's probably very early to tell? But does this big government announcement address some or many of those sort of challenges? It, it addresses some. It, it is providing tax incentives for angel investors, which I think is a, a, one of the most important things that they've announced. Well, this has been done in the UK very successfully. Because we've got a lot of old money here, you know, money that's been in mining and, and agriculture and property, but it's not filtering its way into technology or it's been slow. These sort of tax in incentives, I think, will encourage the, those people that do have the money from the old, old economy and the old money to invest in new things. Um, uh, and again, I think the, the, the Prime Minister announced how he's going to try and uh, develop um, ways for the government to embrace technology in their own purchasing. So uh, those are, are some of the very, very important steps that I, that I think will be in the right direction. The thing that I found fascinating was that Malcolm Turnbull seemed to take an entrepreneurship quality in terms of failure and daring to fail, mm. and he almost placed that on the government Itself, and he said that some of these policies won't work, and that's mm. okay because we will mm. we will reflect and review those policies. We will change them when we need. And I just found that so refreshing, yeah. as opposed to we we implement something and then we have to back it in because it's our idea, and we will we will die saying that he, that was the right was setting, thing. Setting the platform yeah. to change Australia's culture. I think so. Which is not embracing failure. Quite no. no, exactly. And what I see. Uh, uh, in Adelaide, we've got a lot of bright young people. Unfortunately, too many of them leave the state, but they get it. You know, I think the next generation certainly gets it. Uh, maybe my generation, the baby boomers that are, are from here, have been ra rather complacent. Uh, but in, in startup world, you heard my story, we changed many times. You know, you have to change. If something's not working, try something else. I think there's too often the tendency to say, oh, uh, uh, we made a mistake and it failed. But uh, the biggest, I think the biggest risk is if you do nothing. So what's the, the next step then for startup founders? There's this huge announcement, um, talk of a billion bucks, there's a lot of excited founders out there. What do they do now? I think uh, one of the things I would recommend every uh, founder or, or of a company is, is get in a program like Venture Dorm or E-Challenge. I think what I learned, I, I was a shy accountant when I, even, you know, I was 45 when we 
I co-founded Iramigo, but I had done really boring accounting jobs. I didn't really know how to talk or communicate with people. I could add up numbers. But I learned in the journey that networking and being able to sell yourself and your vision is half of your success with, with having the passion. And Steve Jobs was big on that, and I agree with him, having that passion. Um, and I, I see a lot of one-man founders who, you know, work out of their home, but uh, I think it's important to get out and meet new people. So you get into new ideas, you make contacts who can help you, um, uh, and that's, that's, you know, I think the most important step to take. I think you're completely right. Those ecosystems, you mm -hmm. know, people don't achieve great things mm -hmm. on their own. They mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. um, Fortunately, we've located the rooster coop in what I think is a precinct in Adelaide where you've got the hub on, uh, on uh, Peel Street, you've got bars, cafes, you've got young people working in, in small offices and co-workspaces. Co what are the other little ecosystems that you know of in Adelaide? There's a guy uh, named Paul Daly who is consulting to the Adelaide City Council. He has developed the Adelaide... Um, entrepreneur ecosystem map. He's identified about 100 to or more uh, different organizations that support entrepreneurship in should, Adelaide. You get the rooster coop on that, Matt. Can you, are you writing that down in your notebook? Yeah. Get rooster coop. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can connect you to Paul. He's doing some great work. And he's seeing, he's seeing the change. Paul is from Adelaide, and he, he was the uh, managing director of MNET for a while. But I think he's starting to see the changes that uh, should have happened a long time ago but haven't. Uh, and what excites me about mentoring, uh, look, to be honest, um, when I do mentoring, I might meet one out of 20 that I think is a really special talent, and that's probably the odds. Um, you know, some people, not everyone's meant to be an entrepreneur, even if they, they want to. Uh, um, some may not have the skills or ability, but I meet some extraordinary people, um, and you match that up with some extraordinary ideas. Is what excites me is in ten years' time, some of them will be as successful as your amigo, maybe bigger, and they will remember me uh, when I bought them a coffee, and then that now they'll be buying me coffees in ten years' time. So, a couple of real life stories, and just to sort of uh, get really specific, how did the the, you mentioned two startups you're invested in um, mm -hmm. on the show so mm -hmm. far. How did they transform their idea to then get some of your money? What was the process that they engaged you in? This was very interesting. Um, I approached them, Okay. both of them. So I had known them both for over a year. So Jindu... Um, I heard him speak at, it was Innovation Essay at the time, uh, had an event, and I heard him speak. Uh, I was really impressed. I thought, here's an excellent, outstanding communicator, but very smart. And I talked to him afterwards, and he told me how he bought a house, how he funded this, his startup. He bought a house in Tennessee, in America, during the global financial crisis, for $16,000 that needed fixing up. He had it fixed up remotely, and he sold it for 60000 That's how he got his seed capital. I thought, this guy's a great entrepreneur. <laughs> and um, I, I see him two years later. Um, 
or so, and he's here speaking, um, and he's telling me how he went through 500 start, uh, Startmate, which is part of Blackbird Ventures, a accelerator, and he raised some capital, and also through 500 startups, and he moved to San Francisco. He just found it uh, easier there, and that's where the big market is. Um, so I approached him when he came back. He had raised his seed round or whatever. He raised uh, over 600000 and then I put some money in. Um, and I said, look, I didn't know you are looking to raise capital because he's, he found it too hard at the time to raise capital for that early stage company in Adelaide. The other one, uh, Portalink, used to be Portalog. I met him about eight years ago when he first started and I've sort of followed him. What really impressed me is he had a industrial buying supply group who engaged him to create their software. So he connects businesses, uh, suppliers with their customers. And um, I thought that was really impressive because he basically bootstrapped uh, the company. And so I put a, a, a fair amount of money in. And, you know, at first, they, you know, there were some technical thing issues, but now they've sort of cracked it, cracked the problem. Uh, they, they're able to convert manual purchase orders that these suppliers receive in the thousands and millions uh, each year and they're manually processing. They can convert it to electronic data and cleanse it of errors and then automatically uplift it in the supplier system. So that is exciting to me, the most exciting opportunity because um, he has large multinationals as customers who are trying this in Australia, and if they like it, it will go worldwide. Well, it's probably a, a good time to bring things to a bit of a close, so thanks for your time, Stuart. But I will say that Adelaide and Australia needs more people like Stuart. I think Stuart defines how the ecosystem should work as far as uh, building his own company, making money, selling out, reinvesting back into um, startups, and not only that, but also the hours of mentoring and advice that Stuart gives is just invaluable. So um, thanks a lot. And if, uh, if people did want to reach out, where would they find you? Well, uh, you can contact me on LinkedIn um, or email me stuart.snyder54 at gmail.com and... Yes, I was born in 1954, so <laughs> I'm no longer a young entrepreneur. But, um, look, we have some outstanding people here. And uh, I, when I first came here, I thought in five years there'd be another Silicon Valley. It's taken a lot longer. But one day uh, we will have some big success stories. And, and that's the most important thing is, uh, like for me, look, I'm still fussy as a, very fussy as an investor, but it's very important to invest in something that you think has a really good shot at making it because if it does, then there's more opportunity to invest in other things in the future. Awesome. What a great note to finish on. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Rooster Radio Podcast, hosted by Tracks Leadership's James Begley and Apiro Consulting's Andrew Montesi.